Hello and welcome to Beckett and, a monthly podcast focusing on the work and life of Samuel Beckett alongside some of the major issues, ideas and art of our time. My name is Conor Carville and we're coming to you from the Samuel Beckett Research Centre at Reading University. been a while I know and I don't really have an excuse but it's a new term now and I'm planning to podcast much more regularly from now on even if it's just me talking as it will be today and I'm going to kick off with a classic Beckettian topic Beckett and death when I was growing up in the 80s I remember there were two artists that myself and my peers had to take very seriously because they were always going on about death one of these was Ingmar Bergman I think it was probably due to late night British RT television, Channel 4, that I was exposed to Bergman. Probably Woody Allen had something to do with that as well. But the other one was Beckett. And you don't hear much about Bergman now for some reason, but you do still hear quite a lot about Beckett. And hopefully we at Reading contribute to that. So I've been thinking quite a lot about Beckett and death recently. Because I'm getting on in years, and when you get on in years, as many of you will know, people have an awful habit of dying. So I'm going to talk about that, but it's not all doom and gloom, because I'm also going to take the opportunity of this topic to talk about Beckett's prose. So this will be the first of two podcasts, at least, about Beckett's prose. Some of you have been in contact with me, asking me to to do this, and... um, to talk about the fiction and I'm very happy to do it but in this one I'm going to concentrate on a text that hasn't got as much attention as some of the others I think but I'm very much in love with and that's texts for nothing from the early 1950s of course Beckett's famous for his plays and and we'll get there we'll do the plays we do the plays But his prose is equally important. It's in prose that he starts to write in French. And there's a strong argument that he discovered himself in prose, really. His first, the breakthrough work, is a novel, What, written during the Second World War. And his most famous prose text then follows the trilogy written in the late 40s, so-called trilogy, published in French between 1951 and 1953. Three novels, Malloy, then Malone Dies, and then The Unnameable, the last one, sometimes seen as Beckett's masterpiece, sometimes seen as a novel that reads like a draft of a novel. You might think that these two stances are contradictory, and maybe they are. Maybe they're not, but I suppose it says something about Beckett's prose that one finds these two positions. Now, text for nothing builds on the unnameable, comes after the unnameable and cannibalises it a little bit, uses terms and frameworks from it. 
So I just want to quickly say something about the unnameable before getting on to texts for nothing. In the unnameable, a voice seems to be stuck in some abstract realm, tells stories about other worlds, two in particular, two other worlds. One seems to be a physical, reasonably realistic world, because Beckett talks about specific streets in Paris, well, one street, Rue Brancillon, where the horse market was, the slaughterhouses. So there's that world in which Mahoud lives. And then there's another world, which is much, much more abstract. Although at times it seems to have aspects of, of a theatre or a torture chamber or maybe a hospital. But it's... It's only sketched out, it's very schematic. And in, in this space there's a character called Worm who's being tormented, really. And Text for Nothing, you know, it takes up this idea of, of worlds and realms and a voice that speaks. But it's clearer, I think, than the unnameable. Slightly, the, the, underly, the fundamental structure is more definitive, I think which is why I'm talking about it. But it's still a obstreperous, tortuous text. But it's split up into 13 short prose pieces, two or three pages each, which is helpful. But still, yeah, as I say, it's hard work. So what I'm going to do is suggest a kind of mapping for it, drawing on this idea of, of worlds, distinct worlds. I think there's a simple structure that one can bear in mind and it helps you tolerate the amount of disorientation that you're going to go you're you're going to undergo when you're reading it when when I read it anyway so I'm going to suggest a kind of handrail that I use when I'm reading it I'll do this talk generally about what I see as the structure and where Beckett what Beckett's trying to do with it and then I'll finish by zooming in on a paragraph from text for nothing one the very first one. So, as I've mentioned, there's 13 texts and they're all very short and that allows you to, to kind of give yourself over to each individual text to really commit to it, I think. You know, read it and reread it very quickly and do that, you know, one at a time with, like poems, really, although they're not, they're not lineated like poems, but, you know, you can read them individually and quickly the 13 sections, and I think that's a good way to approach them. Like Ezra Pound advised his readers to read the cantos, to read a lot of them and to read them quickly, you know, as an initial kind of way in. And I think that's good advice for text for nothing too. You just, you take one and you blitz it, you throw yourself in, and then you do it again. I think I probably read each one of them three or four times before even beginning to settle into anything like a, an analytical frame of mind. I tried to as I always do, really, when I'm reading, I try to read and respond emotionally and effectively, affectively, to the work, you know, observing myself and my moods as I read on the mood of the text, its tone, its colour, its atmosphere, shifts in atmosphere, testing it out, testing the waters, just rolling with it, rolling especially with the... Um, obscurities of which there are many in text for nothing. I, I just accept there are some parts of a text like this that I'll never grasp. 
And then there's some parts of it that, you know, will speak directly to me. Keats talks, John Keats talks about negative capability, which is, you know, trying to understand something, as he puts it in a letter, quote, famous letter, quote, without irritably grasping after fact and reason, unquote. And Beckett refers to Keats in text for nothing. And he admired Keats a lot. He refers to Ode to Nightingale, viewless wings of posy. And Beckett calls Beckett talks about a viewless form. And you know, again, that's a clue. That's a clue. It's a text that is interested in form and it is interested in and poetic means of understanding, I think. But even with all of these caveats and with this kind of approach, you, you're still going to get irritated, you know. And that's fine, you know, irritated, frustrated. It's part of the process. But so are absorption and transport and joy. So, and boredom, you know, that'll come into at some stage. I'll bet you. Anyway, a little preamble. So what's this map I'm talking about? Well, in all 13 texts, there seems to me to be a movement or the desire for a movement between two worlds and two places. There's an opposition across the whole body of texts for nothing between two spaces or domains. And the suggestion is that they bear upon each other in some way. I can't, I don't want to put it any stronger than that, really, that they bear on each other at this moment. They're both self-contained pretty clearly. But a relationship between them is possible. The first person voice of the narrator, the I of texts for nothing, of all of them, is situated here. It's a word that is used often, here this place and you know one of the things that the text asks us is to work out where this is and it describes this here in detail but it's a various place you know sometimes it's a trench on a mountain top sometimes it's the sky sometimes it seems to be a deathbed or an institution of some sort or a courtroom in one text you know, those are all quite locatable, physical, or well, the last few are physical places, but also at times it seems to be a head, a mental space, a text, the space of literature, or a place before death, or a place after, or a place before life, rather, or a place after death. This first place is all these things. But most importantly, it seems to me, it's a place that is that is somehow unreal, it's virtual, abstract, universal rather than particular. Those kinds of adjectives, that's the feeling of this here that the voice talks about. That's the first world. And it's probably the most important one of the two um, in my little schema. It's the one in which the narrator is most securely fastened. But then he talks about a there. He wants to go somewhere else. He wants to go there, which is likewise multiple. Sometimes it's a graveyard. Sometimes it's a tomb. Um, sometimes it's, it's the end of a journey. Sometimes it's a place where someone is writing. Someone is imagining something. Sometimes it's just the end. 
the end of something, a point in time sporadically aimed at. So these are the two worlds, and there is a sense that the place that the, the narrator wants to go to, um, the there, is a physical is a physical place, um, preeminently or predominantly, not always, but it seems to be an empirical existence that, it, that the desire is for. So as we go through these thirteen pieces of prose, what I suggest is that you keep in mind that you're negotiating a kind of weird space which is composed of these two domains. But the thing is, as is probably clear even from my faltering descriptions of these two places is that they are not completely separable from each other in the text we constantly seem to slip from one place to another or from one status to another you know from the unreal to the real from the real to the unreal we're often unsure of where we are so there's a pattern a kind of primordial or core that I kind of intuitively feel is there. But once I start kind of really looking at it, it dissolves. And that's that's the experience of reading this text, I think. And I think there's something Kantian, just a little riff on Immanuel Kant's 18th century philosophical aesthetics might help us here. I think there's something Kantian about what Beckett does with the structure of two worlds, their relation, the pattern that we can feel and that we know is there, and the idea of of the narrator's desire to kind of move from one to the other, and then the way that that's that that's varied as we move from text to text. Pattern is complicated, permutated, played with as we move from text to text. This idea of order and play. Um, is at the heart of a kind of Kantian formalist notion of what of what the aesthetic experience is. So in text for nothing, mostly we occupy the unreal world, and mostly the kind of the direction of each individual text is moving from the unreal to the real. Now you know, or that's the desire. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. And then occasionally direction is reversed. You know, the vector moves. We find ourselves in the real or physical world or a world that seems is described as physical and the desire is for a, is to break away from that. And then very often too, we think we're in the real and then we suddenly realize, hold on, you know, we notice something that's an image, you know, or a description that suggests that we've got it wrong, that, that's counter to our assumption we're not this world this is the unreal that we're in suddenly we decide or at least there's an ambiguity about it about which world we are occupying so this is what i mean about a basic structure but a pattern that is constantly shifting like a kaleidoscope really you know like a like a basic pattern that's in motion on which which can suddenly become very complex so that you're constantly assessing anew um, what's going on. There's a process that you're aware of, of making judgments and discarding them and um, moving on to another 
viewpoint and discarding that and and feeling that that process happening. I mean, part of the beauty of looking through a kaleidoscope is the chain, is the constant change, not the individual frames. Yeah, and I think that's that's a Kantian view. You know, your interpretation is not fixed; it can't settle. You can perceive order when you look through a kaleidoscope. There is order there. You know there is, but it's also constantly moving. That's that's a Kantian formal aesthetic experience, I think. Pattern disruption, parts and holes, the whole image dissolving into its parts, and then those parts assembling again briefly, momentarily. The roots of this idea of aesthetic experience are for Kant in, in our experience of, of nature, of of our, the, the organic world, nature, according to Kant, seems designed to us and for us, really. It's not the patterns in nature themselves that are beautiful or that give pleasure in a way for Kant. It's the fact that there is form there, that nature is for me, if you like, um, that there is pattern and patternness again. Sorry for these neologisms. Maybe this might become slightly clearer if I talk. If I just mention Beckett's diary from the ni- from nineteen thirty seven when he's in Germany. We've got a copy of this at Reading. It's going to be published soon, next year I think, twenty twenty three. He visits Goethe's house, the great poet and thinker, um, and artist. In his spare time, Beckett notes in his diary he's, he's looking at Goethe's drawings. And he says that, um, and Goethe's a great botanist and biologist as well. He's looking at his drawings and he says, Beckett's, or um, Goethe's drawing catches well the technique of nature, is the phrase Beckett uses, the technique of nature. Now that's a phrase taken directly from Kant, from Kant's aesthetics, critique of judgment, critique of the power of judgment. You know, there's a Technic is, is what Kant, is the term Kant uses, not technique, but a technique of nature, like a structure. The premise or the assumption is for Kant that there must be some kind of order in nature itself that comes to meet us in a way, that comes halfway towards our, the structures of our mind, the architectonic of the understanding, as Kant calls it. The way in which we organize, conceptually organize the world around us wouldn't be possible unless nature met us, met our formative structures that he saw in the human mind. He's not a pure idealist. He's not saying that we just construct the world. He didn't think that was possible. He thought that science wouldn't be possible unless we take it for granted that there's some order already there that our ordering can kind of hook onto a handhold of some description some minimal order that harmonizes with not not the same as the order of our minds but that harmonizes with the way we organize the world the way our species organizes conceptually organizes nature you know there has to be a core of order and it's it's the agreement or the harmony or the attunement stimon between these orders that gives us aesthetic pleasure 
art recognizes that or natural beauty or appreciation of natural beauty is an appreciation of this gladsome feeling that we are in some way at home in the world. But Kant, Kant said this was a regulative idea. It's not something that can be proved. And Kant thought that he deduced the structures of the human architecture, conceptual framing of the world in the critique of pure reason, that subjective aspect. But the this idea of an objective form in nature, Kant, according to the Kantian procedure of critique, it can't be proven. Anyway, the important point here is that order and order, two forms of order kind of chiming with each other, is um, is what Beckett is getting at when he's talking about the technique of nature. Goethe is able to suggest in his art, in his drawing, the forminess of nature and the the beauty that we find in in our the agreement of our mental landscape with that. Kant also this is Kant's rhetoric is quite interesting in in his aesthetics because he talks about how art art as well as nature enlivens us. You know, it's enlivening, he says. It stimulates us. Um, that's one of the ways we respond to it. So you can hear the importance of organic life in his vocabulary. Nature is very important to to Kant's aesthetics. Obviously, hopefully, I've described that. Now, if you've listened to my first podcast in the series, you'll know that Beckett has opinions about the idea of life. He doesn't like it. He's suspicious of it. You know, this idea of life enlivening, the notion of, of, of a vital force, an elan vital, the mysterious life force. He didn't respond well to that. Beckett certainly did ascribe to a Kantian type aesthetics, in increasingly so, I think, in the 30s and 40s. He read Kant, and he particularly read an introduction by Ernst Cassirer, one of the uh, one of the most famous introductions to philosophy of the twentieth century. It's called Kant's Life and Thought. Highly recommended. Um, Beckett read that book in the late thirties, and he alludes to it all the time in Texts for Nothing, which is why I'm talking about Kant. He takes terms from it. He takes phrases from it. I'm not going to go into it in detail. Um, I have an essay forthcoming about this. The text for nothing is written 15 years after he read it. He must have gone back to it. But um, there, are, there were many other moments in the essays Beckett was writing about art, for example, in the late 40s. You can see that he subscribes to some extent to a kind of Kantian formalist argument of the importance of, pat- of, the, you know, the importance of pattern. Beckett loved painting, and painting seems to due to the influence of Roger Fry um, and later Clement Greenberg, painting seems particularly susceptible to a Kantian interpretation of especially abstract painting, of, you know, pattern, parts and whole, disruption, a lack of fixed interpretations. So Beckett bought this to an extent, in a way that something like Joyce, for example, didn't. I don't think Joyce was a Kantian at all, but that's another podcast. But he did. But Beckett didn't go the whole hog in many ways. And he particularly didn't, he, he couldn't take this idea of, of art as kind of organic, you know. That's a romantic idea, the idea of the romantic image, um, organic form. Those terms that emerge in parallel to Kant, really, Kantian aesthetics. Organic form, the symbol, throbbing with life. Beckett's work doesn't throb with life. 
And you can see this, for example, in a grim but very telling quote about Jack B. Yeats's painting. Okay, this is mid-30s back, it says, that Jack B. Yeats's paintings, he's, you know, heavily impastoed, thick slabs of paint, almost abstract. He says they provide, quote, a kind of petrified insight into one's own hard, irreducible singleness, unquote. So it's the opposite of life, you know. It doesn't enliven you, it petrifies you, it freezes you, art. Um, I think that's an important distinction. So it's no surprise, perhaps, that where for Kant, the experience of the artwork relies on this organic impulse. For Beckett, and this is particularly true in Text for Nothing, it's not the impetus towards life that drives the text. It's the impetus, or it's a desire for death. Um, and this is this happens not only in text for nothing, but it happens all the time in Beckett. Characters seeking an end and not being able to achieve it. That's the condition that they're in. So in text for nothing, you have this kind of image complex involving life, death, the story of one's life, the end of that story, and these two discrete worlds, one which seems to be the world of life and physical existence, and the other one is more abstract, as I've said before. The image of the dying body demands and provokes this structure or this question of these two worlds and the relation between them. I mean, in some ways, it's the old mind-body opposition again that Beckett worries away at for his whole life. But it's more than that too. Text for Nothing is concerned about bridging these two worlds or mapping them onto each other, as I've said, or getting from one to the other when they seem to be mutually exclusive. And again, the role that Kant ascribed to the aesthetic, to art and artistic experience and beauty, the beauty of nature, is as a kind of mediation between the mind and the world, the two orders that I've talked about. But not only those two worlds, there's another world that's um, important to Kant and that he worries about a lot. And that's the moral world. And there's a fundamental difference too for Kant between, um, or a break or a distinction between the world of, of moral judgment, of right and wrong, where one is free to choose between right and wrong. And then the physical empirical world of nature where the laws that are in effect are not the moral law, but the law of cause and effect, of, of necessity. And there is no freedom to choose in that world because of the necessity of cause and effect. And so Kant's conundrum was, how can one have a moral life in a, in a world determined by cause and effect? And his answer to that was that the moral world is a different world. You know, it's, it, it takes place somewhere else. It's an abstract realm, another domain from the world of, of truth and falsity, which is the natural world. Kant worried about this so much that he famously referred to, to the distinction between the moral world and the empirical world as, as a great gulf. A great gulf is fixed alluding to the biblical story of Lazarus and the rich man. 
This is what Kant says, between the realm of the natural concept and the realm of the concept of freedom, that's the moral world where you're free to choose, there is a great gulf fixed, so that it is not possible to pass from the former to the latter. Just as if they were so many separate worlds, the first of which is powerless to exercise influence on the second. So, the great gulf fixed between two separate worlds, the moral world and the sensible world, as he called it, the, the, the sensual world, the world of the senses and of nature. And the gulf is, is there because Kant must associate freedom with the moral law and therefore he must invent another world, a supersensible realm, somewhere beyond cause and effect, where the moral law takes its place in order to escape from the law of cause and effect. If he doesn't save the notion of human freedom in this way, the notion of moral choice is meaningless. And again, for Kant, what he does in, in his last book of the great trilogy of critiques is he uses the aesthetic as a means to mediate between these two worlds. Just as it does between mind and nature, it also mediates, it also partakes of both morality and and the sensuous physical world um, and the art form becomes the kind of image of of the moral subject and self-determining and unified and so all of this again like the rhetoric of of life is it's problematic for Beckett and we can see this in in the despair and the the lack of grounding that one encounters in text for nothing. And Beckett himself uses the phrase great gulf fixed in text for nothing five. I just quote from that. I'm not going to talk about this particular text, but I just want to quote just to demonstrate the way in which what I'm talking about here is not just my ravings. This is Beckett. The sky I've heard, the sky and earth, I've heard great accounts of them. I invent nothing. I've noted I must have noted many a story with them as setting. They create atmosphere. Between them, where the hero stands, a great gulf is fixed. So, you know, the hero is there associated with the gulf between the two worlds, the moral world and the physical world, stuck between them, trying to get from one to the other. And Beckett uses this quote not only here, but he did... He, he mentions it in his diaries in the 1930s again. He also mentions it in a review from the, in the 1930s, a review of Dennis Devlin's poetry. The Great Gulf, the biblical quotation refers to the, the story of Lazarus and the, the Great Gulf fixed between Lazarus in heaven and, and the rich man in hell. So this break between the worlds of the moral and the empirical is relevant to texts for nothing, particularly, I think, in the way that, the, that Beckett returns obsessively to to death and and story and narrative in the in the book the question of of how one can tell a story that does justice to a life whether that life is just your own or or perhaps more particularly another's another's life and what i mean by that will hopefully become clearer now when i turn to the text Text for Nothing 1. Text for Nothing 1 is a four-page monologue 
And it seems to me that it takes place in what I've been calling the real world. Certainly the natural environment is described in great detail. It seems to be the Wicklow Hills, where Beckett loved to walk outside Dublin. But when we read it closely, as I've been suggesting, we can see that all is not as stable as it might be. So, first of all, the description, it's the kind of precise terms, almost scientific terms. Our narrator is, is in a quag, Q-U-A-G, you know, a kind of, a very specific kind of bog on the top, very flat, of a mountain in one of the, quote, troughs scooped deep by the rains, unquote. It's, you know, it's kind of specific in its terminology and the way it um, insists on thinking about the process whereby this landscape was created. Then in the next moment, the very next moment, it gets all lyrical and poetic. Glorious prospect, valleys, lochs, plain and sea. And then, as often this is undercut by the, immediately by the following clause, Valleys, locks, plain and sea, but for the mist that blots out everything. <laughs> and he, t- he returns to this view later on, and again you get this mix of, of discourses, really. You get natural science and then conventional literary tropes, almost cliches. I had heard tell, I must have heard tell of the view, the distant sea and hammered lead, the so-called golden veil so often sung, the double valleys, the glacial locks, the city in its haze. It was all on every tongue. Alongside such moments then, you get another mode of description, an empirical account, the testimony of the senses. You know, if the glorious prospect of the view from the mountain is never directly experienced by the narrator due to the mist, his own his own bodily impressions are recorded in detail. Sight is downgraded. He says, there's no more to see. I've seen it all till my eyes are blear. But sound is given its full sensual weight. All is noise. Unending suck of black sopping peat. Surge of giant ferns. Heathery gulfs of quiet where the wind drowns. Eyes closed ear cupped against the sucking peat. And you also get touch. My eyes are closed and I feel the wet hummus harsh against my cheek. And this direct treatment of of the narrator's senses and his sense impressions of the reality of where he is leads to a moment of great intensity. About halfway through, text for nothing one. And I think it's here that I think you can find the three, the three realms of three Kantian areas of nature, morality, and aesthetics kind of all mixed up together. It's a moment where everything I've been talking about so far is present. I think, and the rest of text for nothing expands on it, or permutates it, or returns to a configure similar configuration. It's only a few sentences, and I'll read it at the end. But before I get to that, I'm just going to make a few points about it that I think contextualize it and help grasp it and, and why I think it's important and a useful pointer. First of all, Beckett's mother, May, died on August the 25th, 1950. 
and he'd been with her since June. When his brother Frank had asked him to come and help care for her. So she died in August, late August. In early September, he went back to France. And in December, he wrote Text for Nothing 1. And he recalls this, I think, um, caring for his mother in two lines that are striking. The narrator says, and this is part of the quote that I'll read in fully later as we end, but there's just a couple of lines. Quote, the narrator says, quote, my rheumatism in any case is no more than a memory. It hurts me no more than my mother's did when it hurt her. I, ravening patient in the haggard vulture face. Perhaps it's carrion time, unquote. It's a chilling moment. It's very raw. I, ravening patient in the haggard vulture face. Perhaps it's carrion time. And by remarking that his mother's rheumatism didn't hurt him, the narrator raises the question of the pain of others and how how we respond to it. It's a question that Wittgenstein also famously thought about. The narrator in Text for Nothing One cannot feel his mother's pain, so does not have direct knowledge of it. And there seems to be little in the way of pity, but he does acknowledge that she was in pain, and he understands what being in pain means. And yet this, this somewhat casual sentence concerning his mother's rheumatism then leads to, to that ferocious objectivity of the next line, I ravening patient in the haggard vulture face. Perhaps it's carrion time. The core image is a vulture scanning the earth from the sky above it, somehow both patient and ravening, disinterested and yet compelled. But who, whose face is the metaphor referring to? It's, it's got to be, at some level, the mother's face on her deathbed. Even the word patient in its double meaning suggests that haggard vulture face. But it's also the narrator's own face, I think. The vulture is active. Perhaps it's carrion time. So to some extent the opposition is between carer and patient with the carer as a vulture. And also it's nature itself, the vulture. Nature as a kind of death drive, the predator. There's an early, there's a Becca poem called The Vulture. It was written 20 years earlier, and it's it's being recalled here. And that text associates the vulture with a kind of instinctual force inside the self. The poem describes the vulture in this way. Dragging his hunger through the sky of my skull, shell of sky and earth. In text for nothing one, Beckett says, I'll read it in a minute in context. I'm up there in the sky, in other words, and I'm down here, in the earth, in other words, under my gaze. The narrator is both vulture and carrion, but there's a clear reinscription of, of, of the terminology of the poem here. It's my, you know, shell of my skull, sky and earth. And then, and then the same imagery is picked up again in 
the quote that I've already read to you, the one with the Kant reference, I'll just read it quickly again. The sky I've heard, the sky and earth, I've heard great accounts of them. Now that's pure word for word, I invent nothing. I've noted, I must have noted, many a story with them as setting. They create the atmosphere. Between them, where the hero stands, a great gulf is fixed. While all about they flow together, more and more, till they meet. So, you can see that there's a kind of constellation here of, of these images of sky, earth, gulf, hero, vulture, carrion, carer and patient, I think I've suggested, and worlds, two worlds, the gulf between them, flowing and meeting. And that's where I want to stop, really, and, and, then, and now I'm going to read you the passage that I've been kind of glossing and finish there. And you'll notice at the end of this passage, there's a, there's a few lines where Beckett explicitly is thinking about, again, one of his major topics about the, the possibility of, of communications between individuals, um, individuals taken as worlds. But I think everything I've been talking about is also implicated there. But before I do, I just just want to make one final point. At the end of the passage, it does seem quite grim. Um, but you must bear in mind that this is the very first of the texts for nothing. And these concerns that I'm trying to highlight here, they're worked out and worked through and questioned and extended. And it keeps coming back in the rest of the texts for nothing. So it's not the last word even though it might be the last word of this podcast. This is the narrator talking, lying in the bog. I can follow them well, all the voices, all the parts, fairly well. The cold is eating me, the wet too, at least I presume so. I'm far. My rheumatism in any case is no more than a memory. It hurts me no more than my mother's did when it hurt her. I, ravening patient, in the haggard vulture face. Perhaps it's carrion time. I'm up there, and I'm down here, under my gaze. Foundered, eyes closed, ear cupped against the sucking peat. We are of one mind, all of one mind, always where, deep down. We're fond of one another. We're sorry for one another. But there it is. There's nothing we can do for one another. Mm.